Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts. Set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you had never heard this parable before, and you just listened to the first line, and we just stopped there, just then a lawyer stood up. What would you think? Uh Uh-oh. There's got to be trouble. Right? The only thing that some of you might think would be worse is if someone said, and then an IRS agent walked into the room. Right? But I mean, the reality is, when it comes to lawyers, there's a mixed review. Some people, especially when you need a lawyer, especially when you've been blessed by a lawyer's work, you don't hear anything negative about it. If you've, on the other hand, had challenges because of a lawyer in our litigious society, you might think a little differently about lawyers when you hear, and then a lawyer stood up. Part of it depends on your experience. And we are so conscious of lawyers today, aren't we? I mean, we just came through months of Jody Aries, and we just came through Zimmerman, right? And Trayvon Martin. So we're very conscious of lawyers and how they operate. And sometimes we think they're really, really great, and sometimes we think they're really, really awful. During Jesus' day, most lawyers, not all lawyers, but most lawyers would really be someone who was considered privileged, prestigious, a good person. See, because the lawyers during Jesus' day were both secular and religious in nature because in Jewish life, all the laws meshed together for the whole of life. They didn't separate oftentimes like we do in culture or in society or the secular world. And then there's, of course, our faith world. And they're totally separate. Not during Jesus' day, not in Judaism, because the law or the laws covered the whole of life. They covered the religious or faith aspect in ritual, in moral behavior, even the dietary laws which would come into play with social interaction. And you had a multitude of laws during this time. So the lawyer, in order for the lawyer, we're told, is an expert in the law, a lawyer would have to study 40 to 60 years. Because, let me tell you what their laws consisted of. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of Moses, had 623 laws and the Ten Commandments. Well, then after that, people felt like they needed to comment on the law, you know, like write commentaries. So you had the Talmud and you had the Mishnah. And then you had the oral tradition and the midrash. So these laws kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. You know, I'm sure the number of law books that existed in the 1800s are nothing like the number of law books that exist today. You ever walk in a lawyer's office? If those law books ever fell on you, you'd die. Because there's so many of them. And that's because in our culture, the more we try to squeeze the law and redefine the law and find the niches in the law and justify ourselves and find a way out, we've got to multiply the laws. 
And that's what happened also during this day. In particular during Jesus' day, many of the people would fall into two camps when it came to you know, taking sides on the law, much like we do today. You know, we talk about conservatives and liberals and things like that. Well, the two schools that existed, and sometimes they appeared conservative and sometimes they appeared liberal, so it's hard to nail them down, but the two schools that existed during Jesus' day was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Let me give you an example of how they would differ. The school of Shammai would say of divorce that the woman needed needed to do a grievous transgression in order for a divorce to take place. Okay? Then there was the school of Hillel that said if your wife burned your food, you could divorce her. That's an example of the extreme of the law and how people would interpret and use and misuse and abuse the different laws that existed during that time. So that's what Jesus is walking into when this lawyer stood up and you hear the word to test him. Because Jesus was a young man and by the standards of the day, probably most of the people who would be asked a question, who would be tested by the lawyers, might not have the nuances of the law memorized, might not have the whole package memorized, might not know the different schools. And so when he was testing him, he was basically going to discredit him or justify himself, as we're told. So that's part of the picture that's going on here. And it's really interesting because Jesus says, well, how do you read it? How do you, what do you think's going on with the law? And the man answers correctly. Because if you really consider what the whole of the law is about, the Old Testament, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, it's really, if you boil it down to, it's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's how do I deal in my relationship with the Lord? How do I deal in my relationship with other people? The man got it right. He quoted basically from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes on the heels of the Ten Commandments, which are found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So when you get to this notion of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it in effect is a summary of the law. It's taking all the laws together that have to do with the Lord and putting them all into one. And then he says, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. That's from Leviticus 19. And it's in the context of how we treat other people. And really, in many ways, you have to look at Leviticus 19 with a bunch of verses because what God is trying to do when he's giving the people the laws, he's trying to say, let me give you some other examples of what it means to love your neighbor, what it looks like to love other people. And so there's these series that we'll look at in a moment in terms of what nuances you might want to consider when you love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So that's kind of the context of what's going on here. And the first, the first thing that's said about this man is in order to justify himself. In order to justify himself. You know how often we do that in our lives? How we want to qualify? How we want to rationalize? How we want to make our case? And so we justify ourselves. 
And we justify ourselves in a variety of ways with a variety, if you will, of laws. Laws that we come up with in order to justify ourselves. But let me for a moment unpack to you what is said in Leviticus around this passage so you begin to get an idea. When God was given this law, he was trying to give examples so that you know what it looks like and you know that loving your neighbor actually covers a variety of aspects of life. Let me read this to you, beginning in verse 13. You shall not defraud your neighbor. In other words, don't lie to them. Tell them the truth if you're selling them a car. You shall not steal. You're not going to take something from your neighbor. Listen to the Ten Commandments being woven in here, too. You shall not keep for yourselves the wages of a laborer until morning. Laborers work day by day. They're constantly drawing on that day's wages in order to provide for their family. So you don't hold on to it because it benefits you or it's inconvenient for you to pay them. So in other words, you care about uh, the other person. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You know how we sometimes do that? We see that in our culture too. If someone knows someone else a little better, maybe they'll defer to them and so they'll give them an unjust judgment because they care about them or they care about what this person's going to think about them. And the passage just continues on and around, on and on. Do not go around as a slanderer. Well, you know, depends on who it is and what they've done, right? Whether we can slander them or not. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. If your neighbor dies, you see something you want, nobody's around, you take it, that's probably not a good thing. You shall not hate in your heart. You shall not hate in your heart. See how this is beginning to penetrate more and more of life? Because if you hate in your heart, eventually that's going to come out. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge. In other words, when you begin to understand what this passage in Leviticus is trying to do, is it's trying to say, these are all the examples and nuances and different scenarios you can get into in life with your neighbor, with your friend, with your relatives. And how are you going to handle that? What are you going to do about it? Do you start playing games with, with that? Do you start twisting the laws? See, what we tend to do with laws in our life is we tend to narrow it down so that it suits us and favors us. It's the same thing the Pharisees and Sadducees did. It's the same reason that the laws multiply in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, the oral tradition, over and over again, is to qualify, justify whatever it is I wanted to do so that it would benefit me. That's the way our laws work, our own personal laws, oftentimes societal laws. The way God's law works, in reference to love, it's always expansive. It's always pervasive. It's always forgiving. It's always sacrificial. Very, very different than how we operate with our laws how we try to qualify what our love is going to look like and who we're going to love and when and why. And we need to begin to think, how can I love instead of how can I avoid? How can I love and forgive instead of holding a grudge and being distant from? How can I love 
and care for others instead of how can I avoid really inconveniencing myself and caring for me? So that's what Jesus is trying to say. This is what the Scripture is trying to say, even in the Old Testament, even in Leviticus. So as Jesus is unfolding this and recognizing that this man is trying to justify himself, he's trying to rationalize and limit who is his neighbor, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, even if you talk about being a Good Samaritan in our culture with people who know nothing about the Bible, they will have an idea as to what it is you're talking about. But they might not fully comprehend what Jesus was getting at. Because when Jesus starts this story, and he talks about there's a priest, there's a Levite, and there's a Samaritan. Almost sounds like one of those jokes that you tell, right? And for a Jew, what you would expect is the Samaritan is going to be the brunt of the joke. That's what you would expect as this parable unfolds. And that's not what happens. Because Jesus talks about, first of all, a priest. He says there's a priest going down the road. Now you would expect that he would do the right thing. And we'll get to the Levite in a moment. But basically what he's saying is you've got two ministers walking down the road, okay? Now you would expect a minister to do the right thing, right? Because we always get it right, don't we? We always get it right, Nathan? Absolutely. Well, that's what society thinks. That's what the culture would think. And Jesus is trying to say, you don't look on position. You don't even look on education. Because this lawyer intellectually had it right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Intellectually, he got it right. Where he missed it was here. Because he didn't carry through with what God's intention was. He missed the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. Even though he got the letter of the law correct. And so he says his priest is walking down the road. Sees this guy laying over there. Possibly wounded, possibly dead. You know, the priest is probably thinking first and foremost, you know, i got a schedule to keep. You know, I'm supposed to be at worship. I've got to go do the sacrifice. After all, I'm a priest. And I could become unclean if this guy's dead. And therefore, I couldn't carry out my duty. So, I'm better off just not stopping. That's bad enough. Then you get a Levite. Now, for most of you, that might not mean a whole lot to you. But if you were to look in Exodus chapter 32, what you would see in Exodus chapter 32 is right around the time that the people of Israel are receiving the Ten Commandments and the golden calf, the idol, is being constructed and Moses comes down the mountain, what happens is the people square off. Those who are going to be idolatrous and those who are going to follow the Lord. And those who were most zealous for following the Lord were the Levites. And so the Levites were considered, if you will, a class of people. And Aaron was a priest, the first priest from the tribe of Levi. And so they were an elevated group of priests. They weren't just priests. They were Levite priests. They had the right pedigree. They had the right education. They did all the right stuff. They had the law down. The ritual law, the moral law, the dietary laws. 
You're going to expect this guy to get it right. He doesn't. He doesn't. For probably the same reasons. It's inconvenient. It's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me effort. It's going to cost me resources. Yes, it's going to cost. If he's dead, I'm not going to be able to do my job this week. And who knows, he might not even be Jewish. And I don't want to deal with someone who's not Jewish. Then you get the Samaritan. And I guarantee you the people that were listening right now were wondering, where's this going? Is he going to slam the Samaritan too? He better slam the Samaritan after slamming the priest and the Levi. Now a little bit about the Samaritan. The Samaritan would understand the laws of the Torah because the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, the books of Moses. So he too would understand what loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor would be about. He too would know the basics, but the Jews would expect that because he really didn't know all the laws, because he was a Samaritan, because he didn't really get it, because they were prejudiced against them, basically they hated each other, that the Samaritan wouldn't get it right. And who's the good neighbor? The one who loves the Lord is God and loves his neighbor and lives it out. Because it's more for the Samaritan than just an intellectual exercise. It's something that lives in his heart. And so the Samaritan is the one who is the good neighbor. Because it was the Samaritan who was willing to risk. It was the Samaritan who was willing to take the time and be inconvenienced. It was the Samaritan who didn't care what race, what tribe this person was. What he responded to was the need. What he responded to, the fact that God is merciful with him and he wanted to show mercy. What he responded to is God showed him love and he wanted to share that love. That's what he responded to. And so it's the Samaritan who reaches out. You know, much like the priest and the Levite, we can play the what-if game. What if the robbers are still around and they get me? What if he's dead? What if he's not dead? And we can always find excuses to limit the law, if you will. To limit love. Instead of finding ways to be expansive and sacrificial and giving when it comes to love. So who is the good neighbor? Who is the good neighbor? The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Mercy. That's the good neighbor. It's someone who understands that God showed them mercy first. You know, the reality is mercy does not come natural to most of us. I don't know about you. Mercy does not come natural to me. You know, for one thing, we begin to qualify and think about scenarios, much like this lawyer would do. You know, are you merciful to your family? All of them? Some of them? 
Maybe. Depends. Right? What about your friends? All of them? Some of them? Depends on what they've done for me, did to me, done for me lately. What about strangers? What about people we don't know? Some of them? None of them? See, we have a pecking order. We have rules. They're internal rules. I'm merciful if. And that's not what God says. God says the one who showed mercy is the good neighbor. Not distinguishing. You know, what does Scripture say? God so loved the world. God's not restrictive in the offer. God wants to offer His love and forgiveness to anyone who would turn to Him in Jesus Christ. God doesn't turn away anyone who's willing to believe in Him, willing to accept Him, willing to embrace Him, because He wants to show mercy to the world. And we want to be exclusive with who we show mercy. God wants to love the world, and we want to restrict that love. But God sent His Son, not only to deal with our shortcomings, our weakness, our inability to show that love and mercy, but to deal with our sin, because we need a Savior. And once we understand more than intellectually... That God so loved the world, that first and great commandment, then we respond, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That as that love begins to take hold in our hearts, in our lives, then we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're indiscriminate. We offer that love to everyone. We offer that mercy. And I have to tell you, mercy is not always my strong suit. I confess that. I've got one category in particular that presses my buttons. When I have someone come to the office who is an able-bodied young man and he's looking for a handout, my first thought is, get a job. Because that's how I got through college. Because I got a job. And I have to ratchet it back before I sit down and talk to this person and say, Lord, you know, this is my weak suit. I need your help here. Because I know what lives in me. Mercy doesn't always come natural to me, but the reality is, mercy doesn't come natural to most of us. That's why we first and foremost need to recognize that God showed mercy to us. That God showed His mercy in sacrificial love in Jesus Christ for us so that we can share that mercy, that love with other people so that we can share Jesus Christ with other people because of the testimony of our lives and how we respond to them. You know, when I was preparing this sermon, the Lord gave me a great quote which I'm going to share with you right now. Mercy loves first and asks questions later. Isn't that good? Mercy loves 
first and ask questions later. See, we want to clarify and qualify who our neighbor is. We want to find out who this person is before we're willing to show them mercy. And that's not what we see with the Samaritan. The Samaritan reached out immediately with God's love and mercy. And as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we give ourselves over to Him and the power of His Holy Spirit working in our lives, that's what the Lord wants for us. And then the last line Jesus says in this parable, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The last couple weeks we've been talking about mission. We've been talking about going out into the world. This is something that we are not meant to keep to ourselves. That we are meant to be salt and light in the world because Christ is real in our lives, His love is real in our lives, and we go out into the world and we do likewise. We are like the Good Samaritan. We are like Jesus Christ, that we walk the talk. It's not just intellectual. It's in our hearts. We learn what it means to show compassion, to show mercy, to show love, to bring Jesus Christ to the world, in our presence, in our actions, as well as our words. That's what he's calling us to do. That's why Jesus came. And it cost him his life. See, I think one of the reasons why we hold back on mercy is we realize a lot of times it is going to cost us. It's going to be inconvenient. It might cost us resources. It might cost us energy. It might upset our schedule. We might have to swallow our pride. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus brought the reality of God's love and mercy to our lives to transform us. And that's what He wants us to live. You know, think about it just a little further. The Jews hated the Samaritans. When you love other people, they might hate you. The Jews considered the Samaritans a second class. People might consider you second class. You love them anyway. This man may never have thanked the Samaritan. We're not going out there to be thanked. We're going out there to love. We're going out there to show mercy. We're going out there to offer the gospel and be the gospel for people in the world that need God's mercy. Who is my neighbor? Anyone that needs compassion. Anyone that needs God's love. That's my neighbor. That's what Jesus is trying to bring home. I want you to just, for a moment, close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you just a series of questions for you to ponder and a couple of scriptures for you to take to heart. The first is, are you loving? Or are you legalistic? Do you limit God's love in you? Do you limit those to whom you offer love and mercy? Are you harsh or are you merciful? Do you willingly serve or grudgingly serve? 
Are there people in your life who you hold in contempt? That you are prejudiced toward? That you're slanderous? That you're unforgiving toward? The Lord wants His gospel to take hold of your heart and your life. That we would confess our shortcomings and our sin, our inability to love and be merciful. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus came to deal with our brokenness, our woundedness, our dying. To heal us and bring us life. He came as our good Samaritan. Let me read to you from the book of Hosea, a passage that Jesus quoted a couple of times. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The priest and the Levite could do burnt offerings, but they did not understand mercy. Micah 6.8 He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Lord God, we thank you that as we were the wounded, dying on the side of the road, broken, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us to bring us forgiveness of sin, to restore us by the power of your Holy Spirit and empower us to live the life that you lived. Lord, I pray this day that we would be realistic about the mercy that you have shown to us. That we would be realistic about our own weaknesses, our own inability, our shortcomings, to be able to show love and mercy that we would be able to see the shortcomings, that we limit love by law, our own law. Lord, open our hearts to the truth. The truth that we needed mercy and that you gave it. The truth that we need your love and you gave it. That we need forgiveness and you gave it. And that we are called to share this with the world around us. Lord, I pray that as we prepare for this baptism, for those who do not know you, that they would come to know you as Savior and Lord, the one who has shown them mercy. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, that we would renew our commitment and seek to become more and more Christ-like and how we handle our neighbor, all those around us, with your love and care and mercy. And Lord, I pray this day that as we go forth from this place, that you would empower us to go and do likewise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.